0: This is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open-source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics, open-source software, or short, Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. On the panel today are
1: Andrea Gallo. Hi everyone, I'm Andrea, I'm based in Italy. I work for Linaro, I'm responsible for membership development, and I've been involved with open source and managing teams doing open source for, for quite a few years, and I've been involved in the chaos board for, uh, since the beginning, so I'm excited to be here today.
0: Don Foster.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Dawn Foster. I work at VMware, where I am the director of open source community strategy. So I work within our open source program office. I've been doing this whole open source thing for 20 plus years, so quite a long time. I am also on the governing board and am a maintainer for the Chaos Project. I'm also on the board of Open UK and the advisory board for Biturgia, So they're a company that builds dashboards based on some of these chaos metrics.
0: And myself, Dior Hi Everyone, good to be with you again. I'm a co-founder of the Chaos Project. I'm on the governing board, co-lead currently, maintainer of several of the working groups. And I work as a director of sales at Biturgia. And I was at the Open Source Summit North America a couple of weeks ago, and we had a Birds of Feather session about metrics. And I got to talking with Gina Helfrich. We got talking about the work that she has done, and it's super exciting. I'm super, super excited that Gina is on with us today as our guest. Hey, Gina, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners?
3: Hi, I am so excited to be here. My name is Gina Helfrich. I am Program Officer for Global Technology at Internews, where I manage global programs covering two streams of work. First is working on advancing sustainability for open source security tools that are used by journalists and human rights organizations in vulnerable and at-risk communities. And then I also manage a project that's working on improving the safety and resilience of journalists and human rights organizations facing digital attacks and helping them to set up threat sharing networks in their communities. And prior to Internews, news, I was director for communications and culture at NumFocus, which is a nonprofit that supports open source scientific software and data science communities. So altogether, I have been working on supporting open source communities for about five years.
0: That's super awesome. And especially the tools for journalists. I know journalism is under attack in a lot of areas around the world right now. How did you get into this space?
3: Good question. Uh, When I was working at NumFocus... I was exposed to, you know, working with all these data scientists and my background actually is in philosophy. I have a philosophy PhD with a focus on ethics. And so I'm very interested in the, you know, intersections and interplay between technology and society. And so I was learning more and more about how big data and data analysis and data mining were being used and the effect that that was having on society and democracy at large and i think i sort of took you know had that brief insight of oh actually a lot is wrong here like just before everyone in pop culture was also thinking oh there's a lot that's wrong here so i i was really interested in thinking about you know how can i get more involved in a hands-on way in my career in trying to address some of these issues and make sure that technology is serving marginalized and vulnerable populations as opposed to exploiting and harming them. And I had already been engaged in some of that work in the sense of working on diversity and equity and inclusion, which I've been involved with for many years. But the opportunity came up at Internews. They were looking for someone to manage what I now know as the basics project which is the stream of work that I was mentioning where we're looking at how to uh, strengthen open source security tools that journalists and human rights organizations rely on. So when that opportunity came across my desk, I jumped at it and I feel very fortunate to have been selected for the role.
2: I think that's absolutely fascinating. I think we need more people with backgrounds and things like philosophy and ethics working in technology right now and it's something that we think about in the chaos project a lot especially within the diversity and inclusion working group because i think a lot of us tend to think about data as sort of neutral but data reveals an awful lot about people and you can put people in situations where you're sharing more information than 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 what you should be and and people can figure out who you mean when you have a you know a small number of a certain type of people within a community and so I think that's I think that's particularly important. Do you have any suggestions, I think, for people who are analyzing data about, especially in, in vulnerable populations like what you deal with?
3: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm also not an expert in this area, but there definitely are many great resources out there for thinking about the care that needs to be taken when you're working with data for vulnerable populations or or even just smaller populations, right? Just not having a very large data set puts you at risk of revealing a lot. There is some really interesting work on um, differential privacy. I think you can very quickly, you know, look that up on the internet, (laughs) That I know Apple has implemented and and a lot of, you know, interesting work kind of on the academic side coming out about how, how to effectively protect people's data in the course of doing data science. I'm also part of, call it a lunch club, <laughs> that we meet every two weeks and have a, a fairly sort of heady conversation about these issues. We will read a couple of articles together and then discuss them. And this uh, last week, one of the things that we were talking about was that it's so rare, I think, for data scientists to have had an experience of Hands on data collection and building a data set, not one that you've just like used a scraping tool, but if you really were like doing labeling or really engaged in kind of the manual labor of putting together a data set, I think that closeness with the data subjects, right, the people whose data make up your data set, and the kind of interpersonal nature of that and the messiness and humanness of that interaction gives you, I believe, a different perspective on running analyses if you really have that sense of, oh, there are people here, right? So it'd be interesting. Well, in in our little lunch club we were talking about, it'd be very interesting if we sort of had a, a tour of duty that would be required of data scientists to be engaged in this sort of messy data collection, data set building process, and compared it a little bit to how everyone should have a stint in, you know, retail or restaurant service work, just an appreciation for what those people have to go through. And you could, you know, keep that with you for life. So I think a, a similar sentiment was held like, oh, it'd be nice if you really had that appreciation that these are not sort of, you know, just objects, right? Data objects, but they really are about people, and it's important to keep that in mind when you're doing the work, I
1: think. Gina, you mentioned that part of your role is to look into security open source applications. So I'm quite curious. Some people feel that a secure application should be the clo- as close as possible and even shall use a tools to obfuscate the binary code so that nobody can do any reverse engineering and hack it. On the other side, at the other extreme, people feel that the most secure code is the one that is the most open because everyone can analyze it and can contribute and improve it. What are your thoughts and uh, your guidelines when selecting security applications?
3: So the, the tools that we work with clearly fall into the latter category. And for the purposes of the project, which I should probably summarize the project. That would be helpful as well. So BASICS is an acronym. We love acronyms at Internews. BASICS is an acronym that stands for Building Analytical and Support Infrastructure for Critical Security Tools. And there are two parts to the project, both of which are focused on trying to improve long-term sustainability for these tools. The first part is that we, why we are here to discuss the assessment. We run open source tool teams through a lightweight needs assessment process so that we understand, you know, where their pain points are, where having some additional, you know, hands-on help could make a really big impact and just an overall picture of what's going on with the project. And then we use the output of that needs assessment to identify where it could be useful to hire additional people to work on the project. So for the first cohort that we've done, we already have hired an open source community manager and someone who will be full-time supporting communications and uh, sort of marketing efforts, if you will, for the tools who are participating. And then we have a bunch of more contractor positions open right now in all kinds of development areas. We're looking for like an Android developer, an iOS developer. We're looking for someone to do some user research. So all kinds of different needs that the projects might have that we're attempting to help fill. Because as we know, lack of time, you know, low bandwidth is one of the key challenges for open source maintainers. The other aspect of it is that we are really trying very hard to source those consultants from communities that face challenges with open internet. So it's sort of a you know accomplishing two things in, at once. On the one hand, just getting more hands to assist with these open source tools. And on the other hand, also getting that greater exposure to you know, someone who has the firsthand experience that many of the users of the tool are going to have. The other aspect of the project, we are working with the Guardian Project. They are really leading it, and that is privacy-respecting analytics. So we, you know, also are aware that there's sort of this philosophical tension in open source about not tracking users. So we are, you know, there are pros and cons to that, right? Like on the one hand, it really you know builds a lot of trust, I think, with your user base, and on the other hand. It also means that it's just, it's very unclear (laughs) who your users are, what parts of your application they actually use. All the reasons that people would implement analytics that are not nefarious, but actually like trying to improve your product means you just have no insight into whatsoever. So what Guardian Project is doing is they have developed a methodology and they're continuing to develop a methodology called Clean Insights, which you can learn more about at cleaninsights.org. And for now, they have an Android SDK. I think it's sort of in beta. And they'll be building out one for iOS and a desktop one and a server-based one. So it's really designed to offer open source projects and honestly, whoever, anyone, the ability to implement analytics that really are putting user privacy, user consent, the minimum, we call it like the, you know, the the minimum viable data, but in an analytics context, so that you can get some of those insights that help you to make decisions and do prioritizing around, you know, feature and product development, but that are very conscious of the vulnerability of the user, protecting the privacy of the user, forefronting choice and opt-in for the user. So between those two things, we're really hoping to make a strong impact on the overall sustainability of open source tools. So to circle all the way back to Andrea's question, definitely these security tool teams believe that having everything as open as possible makes it more secure. And so we, it also, you know, at Internews have the same perspective. And so we are only working with open source tools in the context of this project.
1: And getting closer to the area of interest for the Chaos project, when you follow the development of an open source tool or you select an open source tool for adoption, is there any method that you uh, monitor to identify the success of a project? What would you consider a, a good open source project to adopt? Or how would you declare that your own open source project sounds like successful?
3: It's a really good question. I think in some ways, you know, that was trying to answer that question was Part of the impetus for creating the Lightweight Needs Assessment, many of the open source tools that will be participating in the basics program project were sent to us sort of word of mouth from the Internews Network community. So we put out and said, hey, what security tools are you using, right? Like, if you're a journalist on the ground in South Sudan, you know, how do you keep your communication secure? and so those suggestions that came back to us were the ones that we started with in terms of you know outreach to see who wanted to participate and so the goal for the project is really to make sure that the tools that these people rely on are not going to you know be abandoned or cease getting updated or basically you know all of the prevent the extreme security vulnerability that is an unmaintained piece of software that people are still using. So the question of like, how sustainable are these tools? Like, can we trust them? I think is, is a little squishy. It's a little hard to say, yes, here's the line that falls on. You're like, yes, this is fine. No, this is not fine. But really that, you know, as I said, that was really the impetus in many ways for trying to put together this assessment so that we just had a better understanding of like where the risks are for each tool team, like where they're really more vulnerable and kind of need shoring up. Also, we did ask about, you know, strengths, like where do you feel like the project is really strong? Because that's also helpful to know and like build upon. So hopefully that answers the question.
2: And in in general, like, how good are these projects that that people are using? So you mentioned that you're putting contractors on some of them. maybe you can maybe you can give us a couple of examples to help to help people understand the types of projects you're working with. I'm curious sort of overall what shape they were in. Are they reasonably good and they need a little bit of help? Are some of these some of these tools in really bad shape and people are using them anyway and they need a lot of help?
3: I would actually say most of them are in Good shape, particularly given how small some of the teams are. But some of the tools have been around for you know seven plus years, and others are much newer. So I think one of the newer tools that we're working with, for example, it has a wonderful name. It's called Looky Lou, <laughs> and their uh, whole purpose is to really you know break down and understand what's happening in the background of a web page with regards to tracking for the most part. So in the context of security work, looky Lou is used by people who are trying to assess, you know, whether a website is malicious, for example, right? And then for other, you know, more established tools, for example, Cubes OS is a tool that's an operating system that we're working with. But they've been around for a number of years and I think are quite widely used and So far, we've run about ten assessments, and we have maybe eight more tools who are interested in doing it in the fall, so ultimately we'll have a nice cohort. But I would say there's anywhere from on the low end like two maintainers I know for Lookyloo. Lou, and then on the high end, some tools have maybe eight people you know who are working together on it but in terms of quality of the tools i think they are all strong quality there's some of like the process or like the community aspects that definitely could use support so you know some tools have because all of the maintainers are in the same organization they've perhaps fallen into like using their internal comms more than public comms and that makes it hard for contributors to jump in and really get involved so kind of things like that or you know they might if they're an older tool they might have an embarrassingly long list of open issues. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so, things like that, right? So, so there's definitely like pieces of the sort of quote unquote health of the tools that could use work. But in terms of whether you should feel comfortable, feel safe using them, 100%, because that is really the number one priority for all of the development teams is making sure that their users are safe.
1: May I ask a question not to Gina, but to Gerg or Don? Given these very last statements from Gina, which metrics would you recommend that she adopts?
0: <laughs> so I, I'm going to turn it around again because I when I saw the lightweight needs assessment that Gina created for Internews, Gina actually lists chaos as a source of inspiration for this tool along with others like the uh, Apache Project Maturity Model and others. And so what I'm interested in is how, how did you go about building out this tools? So I know you already mentioned several metrics that you are looking at, but maybe uh, you can talk a little bit about how you created this tool, how you've used these resources like chaos in the creation. And then uh, eventually maybe that's the next question then is what are what are the dimensions that you are looking at inside the tool?
3: Yeah. So I really only created it out of necessity, to be perfectly honest. I had hoped that perhaps, you know, maybe we can talk about this, but I had hoped that the chaos project might be in a place where I could just wholesale take it and apply it to these tool teams and, you know, see how healthy they are. But it, it didn't really seem straightforward exactly how to do that at this point. So in the proposal, our funder really was emphasizing that this needed to be light, a lightweight needs assessment. And I, I understood the reasoning behind that. Absolutely. You know, we've already talked about how just time is such a precious resource for the people who are maintaining these tools. And so we didn't want the assessment to be really onerous and burdensome. So I had to try to find a way to, on the one hand, have it be robust enough that we really would have a very clear understanding of what was going on with the tool and sort of how they were doing in a variety of areas. And on the other hand, not make it be too long or ask too much of the maintainers. So what I settled on was I did really rely very heavily on the Apache project maturity model and chaos. I sort of, tried to like weave them together. <laughs> and so the you know, the first task for me was like, well, okay, what areas like how do we conceptualize what kind of general thematic areas I'm going to be asking these tools about? And so I landed on 10. I felt like a nice number, just sort of like pulled from, you know, those kind of two core sources. And so it's licenses and copyright is one, code is another releases, quality overall, community, diversity and inclusion, transparency and consensus building, and then separately, governance, user-friendliness, and then open source sustainability, just sort of writ large. And it was difficult in the first place just to sort of parse out these 10 areas because there's so much overlap everywhere you go. It's very hard to say, well, this goes here and this goes there because there's just so much that really, I think, hangs fairly tightly together. But I just decided that that was fine. That was the nature of the thing. <laughs> so, and then, you know, kind of pulling from some other tools that Internews has developed, like the organizational capacity assessment, which is generally for more formally constituted organizations like a nonprofit or something, they had this concept of like a rating scale, a self rating scale where you would do, you know, one to five and then each of the scores, it has, you know, a description. So if, you know, taking one of the examples for community, right. I I tried to sort of port this over to the lightweight needs assessment. So If you score a one on community, that means that the project has a homepage and it points to all the information required to participate in the community and contribute to the project. And then as you go up, you know, two, three, four, five to descriptions, describe an increasingly more mature and, you know, resilient and robust project in terms of their community. So by the time you get to five, and it and it's uh, cumulative, right? So if you are a five, you also have the one descriptor. Uh, and then by the time you get to five, the way in which contributors can be granted more rights, such as commit access or decision power, is clearly documented and is the same for all contributors, and most contributions of reasonable quality are accepted. So kind of taking this matrix, you've got 10 areas to look at and then scoring one to five or occasionally scoring zero if you don't even have, you know, number one. The tool teams go through and they just themselves say like, okay, we think we're, you know, a four on code or a two on releases, like just kind of going through and they, they say, we think this is where we fit. And then we ask them to just write a couple of sentences of, Justification so that we understand why they have rated themselves as they have in each area. And then the final question in that initial run through is pick your top five, right? Like, we're not going to be able to, this is not going to be a lightweight needs assessment process if we talk about all 10 of these things. So, what are the top five things that you care about the most? So, for each of the areas, it's like, this is not important, this is somewhat important, this is very important. And so, generally, all the ones that they think are very important, you know, make the top five and then a couple of the somewhat. And then once we have that self-assessment, we basically, you know, look through it, prepare for the conversation and we have like a two or two and a half hour in-depth conversation where we start sort of at a higher strategic level and talk through kind of the big picture for the project, like try to understand what is the vision of success? that the maintainers have for this project? Where would they like to see it go? How do they think about, for lack of better term, the sustainability model for their project? Are they trying to just, you know, be funded through an existing nonprofit or perhaps small consulting firm? Are they trying to be really largely community maintained? You know, how do they think about what the long-term future is for their project? And then we kind of drive down into like a SWOT analysis. So, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And once we've had some time to get that big picture really clear, then we go on a deeper dive into their top five areas. And part of the assessment is I've developed a number of questions which have been borrowed from chaos (laughs) and Apache and here and there, um, and sometimes made up from my own mind, just to try to get a little deeper into the weeds on each of these and get a very you know, detailed picture of what each of these areas looks like for the project. And then on the basis of that deeper understanding, be able to more clearly identify, ah, this is the challenge that you're having with your community, right? And so ultimately, kind of after, after, you know, a good deal of discussion, what we try to do is say like, okay, here are the key challenges for this area. Here are some quick fixes or low-hanging fruit, you know, things that we could implement that would be fairly, you know, minimal burden and could actually make a, a nice difference. And then here are the things that we would really like to see improve in this, you know, assessment area over the next six to 12 months. So the assessment process is fairly time bound in the sense that we're not trying to say what needs to happen for your project to go from where it is now in order to then develop into like the most amazing version of the project that it could be. But that's not realistic, right? So we're just trying to say, how can we, you know, looking at these 10 areas, how can we go from where your project is now to where you'd love to see it be in 12 months, right? And really doing that in a way that it's very pragmatic and says, here are the specific steps, the specific changes that we would like to see happen. And we could probably accomplish that by doing X, Y, Z. So it's designed to be ideally not too burdensome and super pragmatic because we want to make sure that, you know, the things that the tool teams are taking on feel doable because it's, it's, there's no use to say, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be great if, but that's never going to happen.
2: Can you talk a little more about how you use all of this data then to prioritize which which projects get consultants or get additional help? And how do you go from the, the data to the decision-making process?
3: Yeah, um, there's actually a, a third step, which is independent. So we use the assessment to really understand what is needed from the project end you know, how we might take those needs and sort of translate them into a job description. But we have a separate sort of scoring rubric by which we determine if the project should be included in basics. And that is based on priorities largely from the funder, right? So it's, you know, does this project support the needs of people who are living in internet repressive environments? How likely is it that the project will be able to implement their capacity action plan and, you know, diversify their funding? Questions like this, right? So we sort of separately score them. And then if they meet a certain threshold in that score, most of whom do, (laughs) then we say, great, we're happy to, you know, fund contractors for you.
0: I think the overall process that you're describing meets that lightweight, Requirement that you set for yourself, but it, we're going to put the link in the show notes. If someone pulls it up, it's a thirty-two page document, <laughs> and I I love it though because the idea of just having ten areas with a score from one to five, and then it's a starting point for conversation to really understand the project, and to say, hey, we want to focus talk more about here, and then you have all of these questions listed. For what could we be talking about to dive deeper? And so the 32 pages should not be <laughs> in any way keep anyone from looking. Yeah,
3: don't it. be intimidated.
0: <laughs> exactly. I, I think you did a really nice job with this. And now, going back to Andrea's uh, question about how do we as chaos want people to use our metrics? When we started the Chaos Project, I had this idea. I don't know if any of you shared that, that we would create metrics that you could just take off the shelf and start using. And just describing the metrics and figuring out where do we find the data, when do we use it, what does it mean, there are different contexts. It's really difficult to be descriptive or prescriptive about here, just go and measure these things, and then you know your project is really awesome or needs help in these areas. So my mind has changed over the last three years where I see the metrics that we're describing as inspirational. We say, here are things you can look at, and we're giving you some pointers for how do you start to get data? What are the questions to ask? But then you still need to adapt it to your own context and I think you did that really well here for your context.
3: Thank you. It was so helpful to have the chaos project. I was trying to come up with those, you know, questions to help prompt people for deeper thinking that you mentioned that, you know, makes up most of the pages and essentially I was just clicking through like digging deeper throughout the chaos repo. For each of the areas, and going like, okay, what is listed here that I can just turn into a question? <laughs> so it was hugely helpful um, when I was putting it together.
1: You mentioned few metrics when you were describing your approach. Two of my favorites, and I'm interested in your, in your thoughts. Uh, one is the time zone or geography diversion, seeing if a project comes all from one single place or is really sees contribution from a wider, from worldwide or wider areas. And the second is the diversity of the employers where the information is available. If a project is all contributed by engineers from few companies, is it really an open source project versus versus open source projects that are contributed by hundreds of people working for different different companies?
3: Yeah, uh, have you um, looked
1: at the, these elements in your in your uh, strategy?
3: Yes, very much so. I, it's been very interesting, honestly, the different types of open source communities that I was working with at NumFocus as opposed to now at Internews, because the NumFocus projects are, you know, very mature in many ways. Some of them are twenty-year-old projects, Talk so about NumPy or something like that. And they're massive, right? So Astropy, another good example, just huge projects that have many, many, many community contributors, you know, it and it's really their sustainability model is we have an open source project that anyone can contribute to. And we have, you know, clearly laid out roles and responsibilities, and we're trying to find ways to like bring people in and keep them so that it's a really, you know, robust largely volunteer-maintained project. On the other hand, most of the security tools that we're working with in terms of the basics project through Internews are more at a fledgling stage in that regard. So they are mostly a few people working in the same organization. If they're you know, lucky, then they have folks from a couple of different countries. <laughs> Maybe they're not all like Global North countries. But very much so, they're they're in this place where they would love to have a community like that. They're trying to figure out how to accomplish it, right? So that is an area of great interest to me is, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens, is I I want to know whether some of the interventions that we're suggesting end up succeeding in helping them attract and retain contributors who are external to the company or the, you know, organization that most of the maintainers are part of and start to really kind of uh, crest whatever that like tipping point is from being, yep, we're just, you know, four people who all work at the same place and we really care about this tool to, well, those four people are still around, but also, like, these two other folks showed up from we're not sure where, but we're really glad they're here. <laughs> and now they're part of the team, right? And it, you kind of start to get that, like, s- slow snowball effect. So I suppose if you really think, like, you know, a true open source project has, you know, people from different organizations, it's geographically spread out, then maybe some of these tools are not you know, quote unquote, true open source projects, but I wouldn't put it in those terms. I really do think, you know, it, it, it's health and maturity. So some of these tools would love to be there. They're just still on the path. They're still on the journey, trying to figure out like how to get to that place.
1: Is there a metric that you have not found in Chaos Project that you felt, oh, this is missing, I should tell them. And Will you submit it uh, on, on GitHub?
3: <laughs> not that jumps to mind. I mean, there are a lot of <laughs> metrics in chaos. Even when I was kind of like digging down through you know, each of the larger working groups, I was like, oh man, I would never even have thought of this metric. So I don't think that's your problem, is not a not enough detail on <laughs> on the metric.
1: So it sounds like actually <laughs> we have too many metrics. And so how hard was it for you to jumpstart into cows and find your way?
3: I mean, honestly, like having the, having the like higher level working groups is very helpful just because then they were sort of thematically grouped and I could kind of like dig further down from there. Ultimately there it was, you know, trying to put together like these 10 areas. And as I said, there's obviously so much overlap. So you're, you know, answering a question about transparency and consensus building, and that actually also has an effect on your community. And so that part was very difficult to attempt to tease out. But just trying to say like, oh, I, you know, let's ask about this, but let's not ask about that was very tricky. And I'm sure a lot of just totally subjective decision making at certain points.
0: I'm happy to hear that chaos has been helpful in your journey, in your metric journey, because that's what we aspire to be. And I, I hope that others are finding the same value. We're, we're working on a new release. And by the time this episode will be released, there will be a new update with more metrics. And so we are struggling right now with how do we make the metrics more accessible? How do we change how it's, they're presented so that you can maybe filtered down or... I, I don't know. We're still in that process to figure that out. Work in progress. But thank you for that feedback. It was really nice.
3: And we've also been getting really wonderful feedback from the open source teams that we've been running these assessments with. I feel somewhat apologetic every time I have a two and a half hour conversation with you know, all the maintainers of some small open source project. i I'm just sort of closing out going like, thank you so much for devoting this time to us. I know, you know, it's not insignificant to ask you for a two and a half hour meeting, but pretty much every time they have turned around and said, no, thank you. Actually, this is incredibly helpful. Like we almost never get the chance to sort of like step back and really think at this strategic level about, you know, what's going on with the project and what we need. And it was like really helpful just to do this, even if we, you know, didn't get any further help. So that has been very rewarding and like good to hear and assuages my guilt a little bit <laughs> about taking the time. <laughs> so, you know, I really wanted to make sure, especially, you know, given that feedback, I really wanted to make sure that the tool was available for the wider open source community and didn't just sort of like die in the obscure corner of an, an internews, you know, folder. So I, I tweaked it a little bit to, to make it broadly available. And it has, so far, I don't know if anyone else has used it. Obviously, we don't have like a report back mechanism. But yeah, you know, message me on Twitter if you're using it. (laughs) But we have only so far done it in the context of having an external evaluator, which is me, us, right, Internews, sort of facilitating the assessment process. But I also put out a version so that If a tool team wanted to just run it themselves, you totally could. So like you could still do the lightweight needs assessment process without an external evaluator and just kind of answer your own questions, right? So both are possible. I'm very curious to know how it goes if anyone does run it just independently for their own project. So if you do, please let me know.
0: So how can people find you on the internet and find this tool and learn more about how to use it?
3: You can reach me at helfrick at internews.org, the email, and then I'm on Twitter at Gina Helfrick, So it's just my name and you can get the spelling in the show notes, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Yes, we'll put all this in the show notes. This is the time where we want to add some value. This is, we call it the pick section where we talk about something that has brought value and joy into our life. This can be open source related. It can be something completely different. And I'll kick off the round by mentioning a book, See You in the Cosmos by Jack Cheng. It's a story of a young young teenager who is in a troubled home, a family situation, and he goes... He has this this idea of building a rocket, and he's on the internet with a rocket enthusiast forums, and so he builds his own rocket, and goes to a convention out in the middle of nowhere where they launch the rockets, and it's a really nice story because he goes on his own, and then meets people along the way, and they help him, and then he meets his extended family that he didn't even know existed, and then he comes back and. It's a really nice self discovery story. And I gave this to our foster child to read. And we had some really great conversation afterwards about uh, some of the ideas in that book and how they apply to everyone's life. So, See You in the Cosmos by Jack Cheng. I recommend that read. Don, do you have a pick for us?
2: I do have a pick. So, lately, all of our conferences have gone virtual, which means that in a lot of cases, we're recording our own talks here in our own home studios, also known as my little tiny office. But I found this tool, it's called uh, OBS Studio. So it's Open Broadcaster Studio. So it's an open source software for recording video. And I had just been using Zoom to record some of my talks. And I'm starting to play around with this. I haven't actually recorded the talks that I'm, but I'm playing around with it for KubeCon. So I need to record my talk for KubeCon sometime next week. But it, I like it because it gives me a lot more flexibility about where things are and how things are set up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that a try. But I, I have a lot of friends that use it and really, really like it. So OBS Studio.
0: OBS Studio, we use that as well. Our marketing specialist discovered this tool. And you can not only like have your slides and your uh, webcam together in the same screen, record it or stream it, you can even use it as a webcam where you can design what you want to show as a webcam when you're in meetings. It's quite amazing. Andrea?
1: So can I share two? (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) more value. (laughs) So
1: (laughs) I got inspired by your thought about the book. And one book that I found really fascinating a few years ago is Secret Life of Dolphins by Rachel Smorka. And it was so inspiring to me. Dream trip would be to Australia, to where she studied uh, wild dolphins that every day were swimming down to the the shores and get fed by humans, and then swim again out in the wild. And she studied all the the, the communities of wild dolphins, the way they interacted and lived together, and etc. Was so fascinating. So that's the first one. Uh, a really great reading. And the second one, talking about working remotely uh, from home and not going to any conference uh, face-to-face anymore. A few days ago, a colleague shared with me the windowswap.com. And you just click and see the view from random windows in the world. So if you want to look outside and see something different, because outside your window is always the same, Well, you can try this one. It's fun.
2: I think Gina's Googling for it right now. (laughs) I definitely am.
0: Yes, we'll put a link in the show notes and Jeff, you can drop that in. That would be great. Thank you. So Gina, do you want to round us off and close out the session of value ads?
3: Sure, yeah. I'm going to take a page for Andrea and do two real quick. (laughs) So the first one is roller skating slash watching roller skating videos on Instagram. I think particularly in the pandemic, this is sort of nice. I was never a particularly good roller skater, but about a year ago, some friends and I just got it into our heads, like we're going to go roller skating. (laughs) So now I have a pair of roller skates and I'm like trying to improve, you know, my balance and what have you. and. Thanks to the world we live in now, there are all these amazing videos of people who are really good at roller skating on Instagram. And then there are like channels who do, you know, tutorials. So I can just watch people tell me how I can be a better roller skater. There's also kind of like this dance concept. Like I was a big dancer for many, many years. And there's like a, a way of doing roller skating that is like roller dancing practically. And actually, there's this amazing skater from Berlin. I think her, I don't, not sure about the pronunciation, but I think her name is Umi Yanta. And if you just like type, you know, Berlin roller skater, something like that, I'm sure it'll pop right up. But she's amazing. (laughs) It's just so graceful and, you know, just really interesting footwork. And so it's really fun to watch. So that's my one. And then my very quick second is a book that made such a huge impression on me when I read it. And I think the pandemic is honestly like a perfect time to read it, but it is by an artist named Jenny O'Dell. And the book is called How to Do Nothing. And it is this wonderful, you know, musing treatise on how we can resist some of the more insidious things that I think the technological world is doing and in a way that really prioritizes and forefronts local ecology and local communities and since everyone is stuck at home right now i think you know the emphasis on what's going on in your neighborhood what's going on in you know the nature outside your house is a really nice thing to be thinking about and I just can't recommend it more highly. It's outstanding.
0: Well, thank you. It is time to say thank you. Thank you, Gina, for coming on as a guest today. Thank you, Andrea and Don, for being amazing panelists today. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in.
1: Thank you to you, Gareth, for running this. Thank you. And thanks, everyone.
3: <laughs> thank you all. This has been such a lovely conversation. I really appreciate you having me on.
2: Thanks,
0: everybody. This has been fun. Yes. Thank you for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us at podcast at chaos.community. That is chaos with two S. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your Chaos Community.